David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago Sun-Times sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Welcome to another edition of Sports and Torts with David Spada and Elliot Harris. I'm not David Spada, so I think that means I'm Elliot Harris. David is not here today. He's off chasing ambulances or in a courthouse somewhere, whatever, whatever lawyers do. And usually when that happens, a beautiful woman is in studio and David complains about missing out on that. Today, there is no beautiful woman. There's not even an ugly woman. It's just ugly me here in the studio. But what I missed out on was one of the truly wonderful people that I would have loved to have been part of an interview with. Instead, David had the pleasure of doing it all by himself. We have two great guests today. The first one is the legendary broadcaster, Vin Scully. This is a true pleasure for me. This is a gentleman I listened broadcast, and I'm 41 years old, and he was broadcasting long before I was born. He's broadcast the Dodgers when they were in Brooklyn and now in L.A. He's not... Not only done baseball, football, all kinds of sports. I remember him doing the Skins games back in the day. On the phone, legendary broadcaster Vin Scully. How you doing, Mr. Scully? I'm fine, thank you, David, and I'm Vin. Vin, how did you get started with the Brooklyn Dodgers? Well, I had uh, done some football for the CBS radio network. Red Barber was the sports editor, and Ernie Harwell was leaving the Dodgers to go to the Giants, and Red decided that perhaps he would take this young broadcaster who had done some football for him and uh, fit him into the Dodger broadcast booth at Ebbets Field, and that's how it began. And not only did you work with Barber, you were working with uh, Connie Desmond. That would be a true uh, yes. thrill for you. We, uh, we had a marvelous chemistry in the booth. I don't think it will ever happen again. Uh, Red was the father. Connie was the older brother, and I was the kid brother. And somehow or other, it uh, mixed and came over the air that way. And I think uh, it was a rare and very pleasant combination. And then you got to do the World Series there in 53. I mean, you had to be thinking to yourself, I can't believe I'm living a dream. Well, I was in shock. I was somewhat scared to death. I had not done but a tiny bit of uh, baseball on television. And when Red and Connie, uh, actually Red was in a labor disagreement with the Gillette Safety Razor Company, and he would not work for the monies they offered. And so when eventually they came to me, I said I'd accept gratefully, but only after I talked to Red and Connie. And when I got their blessings, because neither one was going to do it, only then did I accept the job. And as you can imagine, at uh, you know at such a tender age, I was overwhelmed. And uh, my friend Mel Allen, 
assured me that all will be well. And sitting alongside of him, I began to settle down, and that was the first one. Did you think to yourself, you know, maybe I shouldn't do the game because even though they're agreeing, Gillette is basically not agreed to their contract demands and I'd be selling out my friends? Well, that was my whole idea. I did not want to undercut Red and or Connie. And Red said to me, look, uh, I'm not going to do it. If you turn it down, they're only going to get somebody else. And I'd really love it if uh, one of the representatives in our booth was doing the series. So he said, you have my blessings and go get them. So then I called Connie, and Connie said, I've had my differences in the past. I know they will not give me the job, so I heartily recommend with my blessings that you accept it. And only then did I call back to say, okay, I, I'll be honored to give it a try. He sounds like he was a class act, uh, uh, Red Barber, because, I mean, a lot of guys today would say, no, I don't want you to do it. If I'm not doing it, no one's doing it. Well, he was not that kind of a man. He felt that basically he had done the World Series for many years and was not uh, uh, paid the equivalent of what he should have been paid. And he just said, I'm not going to do it anymore. And that's the way he is. He was a uh, he was a wonderful human being and very, very scrupulous. He had his uh, high standards, and he was not about to lower the bar. When the Dodgers went from Brooklyn to L.A., I mean, you were going from living in New York to L.A., was it an adjustment period for you? Well, the biggest adjustment, it was a somewhat bittersweet feeling. Uh, the bitterness would be the fact that I was leaving my family and all my friends, and I was somewhat secure. By then, I had been doing games in Brooklyn for eight years, and I was uh, reasonably accepted by the listeners. Now, suddenly, uh, I was going out to California. But the sweet part of it was... I had a job. They could easily have moved without me, and I know there was some suggestions, I wouldn't say pressure, but certainly suggestions to Walter O'Malley that I use local announcers here in Los Angeles. And Mr. O'Malley felt that, uh, and he was very, very strong as far as loyalty is concerned, and he felt that, uh, no, that... But then and Jerry Doggett, who had worked for him in Brooklyn, should come with the team, and we were forever grateful for the opportunity. Another man might very well have listened to the people out here and left us back in New York. So there was that double feeling, sorry that I was leaving family and friends, and relief that I had a job. I never understood why the Dodgers went from Brooklyn to California and why the Giants went from New York to San Francisco? I mean, because it seemed like New York was a big baseball town. Well, I think, and I can't speak for Horace Stoneham, originally the Giants were going to go to, uh, I think it was going to be in Minnesota. And, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure Minneapolis. And um, Walter O'Malley convinced Horace Stoneham that it would be better to keep the Giant-Dodger rivalry alive. There's a natural rivalry out here between Los Angeles and San Francisco anyway, 
and he felt that we could keep the Giant-Dodger rivalry better should they move out to California as well. And apparently uh, Mr. Stoneham agreed, and so they, they came basically with us at the same time to the state. Then I see you had a chance to go back to New York and become the, broad, the Yankees broadcaster, but you decided to stay in L.A. Was that a tough decision? No, not really. Uh, had it come much earlier, I don't know, maybe I'd have given it a second thought. But I was so happy with the O'Malley family, the treatment. They, they were just such wonderful people, and I learned to love each and every member. So when they offered me, and the offer came not from the Yankees. It came from a man I knew in the advertising business who um, was, I guess, representing some thoughts, and he asked me if I would ever consider coming back. And by that time, I was pretty well ensconced out here and, as I said, had a strong allegiance to the O'Malley family. So uh, I don't believe I would ever have gone back. And, of course, I never second-guessed it at all. You called some great games, Don Larson's perfect game, you called, what, Hank Aaron's home run that uh, broke the record. Uh, Kirk, I remember, the moment I remember, Kirk Gibson in that World Series hitting that home run on one leg was absolutely incredible. Is there a call that stands out that you said, you know what, that was my best call ever? No, I, I, I don't look at it that way. In fact, uh, I always remind people that all I did was account for the greatness of somebody else. So although I enjoyed the moment for that particular person, I, I never really took any pride in what I had to say. Uh, I certainly was uh, honored to be a part of Larson and of Aaron and of Gibson and so many others over the years. But uh, no, I, I wouldn't say that there was any one because I think they were all major moments at the time, and uh, what I said isn't nearly as important as what they did. People don't realize that you covered the NFL for many years. I mean, they always think of you as the Dodger broadcaster, but, I mean, you, co you called the championship game between the Cowboys and 49ers when Clark made that catch, and you had a chance to basically be the broadcast partner on um, with Pat Summerall that went to, uh, with John Madden that went to Pat Summerall. Yes, I've been fortunate. I've had a full career in baseball. I did the NFL for uh, eight years, and then I did uh, PGA golf for about 15 years. So I've I've been fortunate indeed, and I'm very humbled by the fact that I've had such good fortune, believe me. And it was fun doing all of it. They're all different challenges, and uh, I think in doing golf, it's a team broadcast more than anything else. So when you do a good job, you think we did a good job. Where the others, you're more uh, individually exposed. And I had great partners with the NFL, just wonderful guys, going way back to uh, Alex Hawkins and then to Sonny Jurgensen and then, of course, to John uh, I never did work with Pat because he was always, at those days, with uh, Tom Brookshire. But uh, it was a great experience. I enjoyed every minute of it. But it was another chapter in my life, uh, which is closed, and uh, I don't look back. 
I really enjoyed those skins games when you call them because, I mean, you'd see the greats playing Nicholas, Palmer, Trevino, Watson. The only thing I wish they would have done is if they would have been playing for their own money. I think it would have made it even more interesting. Well, probably so. It, it was strictly a, a structured television event. I mean, everyone was aware of exactly what they were doing. And uh, the competition was so great amongst the, the quartet that uh, it would be like watching a, a U.S. Open. They're playing for money. It's not their money, uh, but it's the prestige of beating the field. And when you get to the, the gods of golf, the Hall of Famers, like Nicholas Palmer, Trevino, Watson, etc., uh, where the money come from, uh, it was important when it built up. But I think it was just the, the idea of the artists at work and one of them eventually outdoing all the others. So that was a wonderful event in its own way. I missed that event on Thanksgiving weekend because, I mean, you'd look forward to and say, okay, who's going to win it this year? I mean, because, again, it was the great to golf, the legends. Well, it was fun. And, of course, watching them uh, with some sometimes inventing shots as the story built along, it was just marvelous fun with the money uh, thrown in on the side. Admittedly, those players involved in skins were men who had already accumulated uh, sizable amounts of money. So again, although the money was the headline, uh, just the idea of these wonderful players competing head-to-head in such a small, intimate group, it wasn't a case of uh, you know 75 players battling for a championship. It was head-to-head. Uh, I thought it was wonderful. You got to work with another uh, Hall of Famer and Joe Garagiola. What was he like? Oh, Joe is Joe. Joe is uh, very bright, uh, very intelligent, very knowledgeable of the game he played for so many years and played so well. And then add to that uh, a sense of humor. And he was a delightful partner. And I enjoyed every every game and every minute with Joe. And uh, please God, he will remain in good health. He's been fighting his health the last few years, but uh, I see him when I do go over to Arizona, and I always look forward to seeing him and, uh, you know, just cutting up some old touches about some of those days we spent together. I interviewed Joe beginning of the year, and he mentioned that one thing he wants to get clear is he did not spike Jackie Robinson, and to this day people still think he spiked him. He goes, I did not spike him at all. Oh, I don't, uh, to be honest... Did you say he didn't fight? Spike him. I yeah, guess he, he didn't spike him because he was going into the base and there was some basically statements made that he tried to hurt Jackie Robinson. Oh, oh no, uh, he's not that type of person. I'm sure in Jackie's very early days, and it's pretty well documented who did what, that there were some players who purposefully went in extra hard, spiked high, whatever, but uh, I know Joe was not involved in that any way, shape, or form, no. And he says, and he was great about it. He goes, no. He goes, I respect him as a player. He was a great player. And he said, it's too bad he didn't play longer and get to play when he was younger because he would have put up some huge numbers. Yes, I agree completely. Is there a, a sport you enjoyed ca- uh, calling more than one out, like football more than baseball or baseball more than football or golf, or did you enjoy everything equally? Well, I play golf, so I enjoy watching the best do what they do best. But if I had to 
pick one broadcast of one sport, it would be baseball. Uh, I tried to play it seriously enough that uh, I played high school baseball, I played varsity college baseball, and uh, I knew I would never make it as a big leaguer. But I love the game. I love the challenge. And now, even to this day, what I admire the most is how these men make what might appear to be an easy play. And I know in my heart how difficult it is. And they make it look so easy. Uh, it's remarkable. And I still have that awe in my voice when I watch them play. They're incredible. You are the last of the legendary broadcasters still broadcasting. I mean, in Chicago, we had Harry Carey, Jack Brickhouse. St. Louis had Joe Buck. I mean, you had, like you said, Red Barber. You had incredible broadcasters. Are we ever going to see broadcasters like that again that stay with the team for 60 years? Well, uh, what happened, I believe, those great names you mentioned, they all started in radio, and they were all deeply mired in radio until television came along. And once television came along, all of a sudden there were several announcers. In other words, in those days, if you said the Cardinals, you said Jack Buck. If you said uh, the Dodgers, it was Red Barber. If you said the Yankees, it was Mel Allen. If you said Chicago, it was Harry Carey. And it was all because these men worked on radio, basically, and were part of the community. But as you know, every team now usually will have a couple of fellas doing play-by-play -play on radio, a couple of fellas doing play-by-play -play on television, a couple of fellas doing pre and post on radio, a couple of fellas doing pre and post on television. And all of a sudden, uh, instead of being represented by one person, Teams have been represented by a team of broadcasters. So in some ways, that's probably diminished the role of the broadcaster as opposed to those days when they were basically uh, brought in on radio. Who was the greatest ball player you ever saw? Well, I will qualify it by saying that the greatest player I ever saw, and I saw him a lot. In those days, one team would play another team 22 times, 11 at home and 11 on the road. So the greatest player that I ever saw was Willie Mays, without a doubt. But there were so many great players. I, I would put Will, Willie first, and then he would be surrounded by an awful lot of others. Well, that definitely was an interview that I, again, wish I had been part of, but it was just a joy to listen to with Vin Scully and David Spada. When we come back from break, we will have another interview. This one with legendary football player Bobby Mitchell. You're listening to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. Mm -hmm. 